welcome to a special episode of Tutoriferous. Indeed. I'm Lucy. We don't really have an entry for <laughs> special episodes. <laughs> I'm Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> By the way. <laughs> we'll figure it out one day. Yeah. <laughs> and today... Relics. 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 Bits of old dead body. This is going to be weird because relics can be rings. They can be... Uh, there's a girdle that women used to use, uh, put across their bellies during pregnancy. Uh, our Queen Elizabeth did that. Um, Henry the Seventh's wife, not Queen Elizabeth, that just passed. <laughs> <laughs> but they can also be body parts. Oh yes. Oh, that's just so creepy. It is. Yeah. And apologies to anybody because I mean, there's it's still a Catholic thing, relics, and so yes. apologies to anybody who still venerates relics because yeah it is creepy <laughs> yes oh oh that was recently in the news and for recently for me that could be like the last <laughs> decade they were doing some sort of construction in london and they found a relic a thumb in a box and then they had to say like what do we do with it because you can't sell relics anymore no you can't when you by rights as we'll find out in a minute you haven't haven't been able to sell them since the 5th century oh <laughs> oh okay officially I wonder what ever happened to that cuz it yeah. was with a garbage company and they didn't want to keep it cuz it's creepy to have the thumb in their office. I don't know I've um, I've come across they found an eye in a box and that was Ugh. that belonged to a priest um that had been kept within a catholic family in a you know in a, an old Catholic house that I think was still owned pretty much owned by the original people, and yes, it was a priest who was martyred, and somehow his eye ended up in a box. Oh, Ugh. okay. It wasn't it wasn't quite a decade ago. It was March eighth, two thousand nine. It was found oh. during excavation work in Shoreditch, east of London, but oh. it doesn't say whatever happened to it. I wonder if it's still with the garbage company's yes. office. Because <laughs> you can't, with human remains, at least in Canada, you can't just garbage them either. You're not allowed. Mm. And you can't mm. send them through the post either. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is going to be a slightly odd episode, since usually we stay within the 15th century, with a bit of leeway either side. <laughs> it's already an odd episode. <laughs> In this episode, we're going to start in the 5th century and go on to the end of the 16th. Apologies if I'm a bit croaky, but if we didn't record when we, one or other of us have got flu or a cold, we wouldn't be recording at we all at the moment. Recording. <laughs> yeah, we've decided to do this episode in Henry VII's season because in this period, relics and shrines were still a thing in England. Yes. After Bosworth, one of the first places Henry went was to the shrine at Walsingham. Right. But, as we'll hear later, it was not to last. But at this time, people believed in the power of relics almost as much as they had throughout the Middle Ages. And I say almost because the frenzied belief of the Middle Ages was waning. Yes. People were starting to question. Yeah, but like we said, Elizabeth of York, she sent for that girdle during childbirth each time. Oh, yeah. It was still yeah. very much a thing. Yeah. And if we want to get inside the early Tudor minds, we must include the belief in the power of old bones, hair, wood, yeah. bits of cloth, to intercede with the saints, who in turn would intercede with God and grant your prayer. Odd as it might sound to, to an outsider, anyway. Yes. <laughs> so this episode is a brief history of relics to try and understand why people in Henry VII's time still believed in their power 
and why that belief was beginning to fade. Lack of education, then education started. (laughs) That might be a bit controversial. (laughs) Well, we'll find out. Initially, and I'm going to hate this word because I can never say reliquiae, reliquiae, the plural of reliquy, were the dead saint or their ashes, the bodies of the saint, the whole thing. Oh. Which would be laid on the altar of the basilica. And it's not surprising that the early Christian church was seen as some morbid cult and why they yes. were accused of cannibalism. I mean, if you take a dead body and you flump, I imagine it being sort of flumped onto the, the altar like a pig in a butcher's uh. slab, really. So Ooh. You have your ritual around not just a dead body, but quite probably one that's been dead for quite a long time. So oh. I don't think it's that surprising that the Romans thought the Christians were a little bit odd. Yes, the mm. Romans thought that. The Romans were Christian. <laughs> oh, I meant early Romans. <laughs> yes. Prior to, prior to, uh, to Constantine. Yes, and we are still odd. There are the bone churches. Yeah. Where most of it, or there's the one in Russia that even the chandelier is made out of human skeletons. <laughs> yeah. We're a very odd species, aren't we? Yes, we are. Although it would be really neat to do the DNA testing on all those bones and see who's who. Yeah. You can um, map out. I've got a be. secret designer designer to go and look at this church in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do want to go. There's also the bone caverns in Paris. Yes, there is. My, I've got a picture of my daughter standing in front of them with her doing, doing a thumbs up with a big grin on her face. <laughs> <laughs> she loved it. She loves that sort ah. of morbid thing. <laughs> Anyway, Vitricius of Rouen said that not only could the body of the martyr intercede with God in heaven, but you didn't need the whole thing. Just a sliver of bone would be as powerful as the whole body. And this meant that the ability to spread the joy grew exponentially. Okay, two questions. What was his rationale? And is he now advocating cutting up these people? Oh, yes. Yes to the second one. Oh, oh, yes. Blind me, yes. They loved chopping them to pieces. What oh. was his rationale? I have absolutely no idea. I always wondered why you ended up finding thumbs. So he actually said, you know what? We should just cut them up and spread it around. Well, he thought, that, well, he, he claimed that the Holy Spirit resided within the bodies. So if you touch them, you were coming close to the Holy Spirit. So you wouldn't need the whole thing. Uh... You just touch a little bit and you're close to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it meant that yeah, if you've got one body, it can only reside in one place, but start chopping them up and they can go all over the place. Wow. So, by the 6th century, body parts were all the rage, as well as objects associated with the saint and even just things they might have touched. That I can understand. At least that's clean. <laughs> it's not yes. decaying Yeah. Death. Yeah, I mean, Rob, my partner, has got a little splinter of wood that he found on the, on the stairs in the house in London where Jimi Hendrix stayed. <laughs> and he, oh. he keeps that like a relic. So this thing, like... It, it's well, there are certain things. Like, um, my dad wears this gold chain and he's worn it his entire life. And for some reason, I really associate that chain with him. And when I was a little kid, I used to steal it when he was napping <laughs> and wear it until he figured out who had stolen it. <laughs> So to me, I would love to keep that necklace. It's going to my brother, of course, because he's a guy. Um, But yeah, I can see why pieces of jewelry or 
something that they loved and wore on a regular basis would be associated with them and you could feel mm. closer to them through it. But the actual physical body parts? No. No. I'm not getting that. No, you're not keeping your dad's thumb or anything. No. 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 Okay. The milk of the Virgin Mary was very popular. And I'm sorry? The milk? The milk. There's a lot of milk sloshing around by the end of this, this episode. And blood. It was a powerful image for people. When Thomas Beckett was murdered, not Thomas O'Beckett, Thomas Beckett. Thomas Beckett. People flocked to dip bits of cloth in his blood and fill little bottles, right. even as his body still lay by the altar. And also you'd find when, when martyrs were burned, people would rush forward to sort of gather the oil in little bottles. And I'm getting that from the film Elizabeth. I think that was the beginning of the film Elizabeth, people rushing up to get ashes. Yes, and... but the question is, when you say oil, do you mean the body fat that has turned into liquid? I mean the body fat, yes. Oh, God. <laughs> should, we, should we put a proviso on this episode? Uh, yes, a proviso on this. This is going to be graphic. I'm afraid it is. Um, this is a whole episode about body parts. It's going to be very hard not to be graphic. It's fascinating. I do find it fascinating. But at the same time, it's so cringeworthy. <laughs> it really is. And bizarrely, those things that you would think would be anathema to Christians, like the cross, the lance that pierced Jesus' side, his crown of thorns, and the 30 pieces of silver given to Judas, were incredibly popular. I mean, why would somebody want to venerate something that had been part of the torture and betrayal of Jesus? I don't I get don't... that one. I can see the cross because he touched it. His blood went on it. Same with the javelin or spear. But the coins, mm. the coins make no sense to me. But then you see how how much things go for that were owned by Elvis. Or and he was definitely not a saint. Marilyn Monroe. So, yeah, people, people just love to latch on to things. The movie Dracula 2000 said that um, Dracula was Judas Iscariot when he tried to hang himself it failed God rejected him was that in Bram Stoker? no not at all <laughs> no, I was going to say <laughs> Dracula is... 2000 with Gerard Butler before he was known I've never heard of him so he's still not known <laughs> <laughs> what? oh my goodness <laughs> everybody out there is going <gasps> <laughs> sorry King I don't Leonidas watch in 300 the movie 300 I never watched that that's the one with the synthetic abs isn't it yes <laughs> so you know about the fake abs just not the star okay look up Gerard Butler when we're done okay alright I'm sorry my knowledge of film is minute <laughs> I thought mine was <laughs> The intellectual elite may have followed Aristotle's view that events like earthquakes and illnesses did not require the intervention of gods, but stemmed from natural causes. But these people represented a tiny percentage of the population. Most people yes. hung on to the thought that God was angry. Well, a good 95, 98% of the world was illiterate. Yeah. The European world was illiterate. Yeah. So they wouldn't have had access to those thoughts. No, no, no. And the ones which were literate, as we discovered in the... Pico della Mirandola episode on Patreon. <laughs> oh, frankly, weird. Yes. Tudoriferous Patreon. Hot and spicy. Anyway, talking of weird, it was Augustine in his work City of God who cranked up the idea of eternal suffering. 
Is this Saint Augustine? Yeah. He okay. said that most people, and that's most people, would have torment in hell to look forward to. I thought it was everyone who didn't. Well, it's he's implying. Uh, I can't that think of the word. <laughs> you have um, re- re- not, repent. You, yes, but even if you repent, you go to purgatory. Y- yes, but I think he's saying you have to be very, very good, or you're going to hell. Okay. Yeah, this he's... is the man who said, "God, teach me not to sin, just not yet." Hmm. <laughs> Well, do as I say and not as I do. <laughs> but if you're faced with that melancholy prognosis, it's hardly surprising that you make a grab for relics and miracles and pilgrimages. Yes. People hope that saints through relics would be able to intercede for them and keep them out of hell. Yes. But you do wonder, what? why do they torture themselves with all this stuff? Well, if you think about it, their lives would have been full of pain. All those little aches and pains that we have. Why add to your torture by sending yourself mad? Because people don't like being happy. (laughs) In the early days, to some people, the use of relics was baffling. Yeah. (laughs) Since the body was where all the decay and filth and gross stuff took place. Yes. It was the spirit that counted. Yes. But this was easily explained, as these things are always easily explained, and then you think that's not an explanation, since it was thought that the transformation from body to spirit could start on Earth, partly through the ingesting of the Eucharist, and that's the wafer. Yes. The body you're, not, of Christ. you're not eating the dead body. You're okay yeah. <laughs> so far. Yeah, but mainly through martyrdom. And this did mean that because oh. the body was already part spirit, martyrdom wouldn't hurt. And I wonder how um, many people fell for that one, only to cry out as the flames licked around them. You said it wouldn't yes. hurt. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, you wonder how many people were lured into martyrdom by this thought that, well, I'm part spirit now. It's not going to affect me. The reason that the bodies of martyrs did not decay, incidentally, was because they went straight to heaven. They didn't have to wait for the day of judgment. Okay, I was going to go for the scientific explanation, but continue. No, 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 no. No, No, you're wasting your time with your scientific explanation at the moment, I think. (laughs) When Constantine I converted to Christianity in the 4th century, not only could Christians come out of the woodwork, but so could their relics. Yes. The caskets and buildings that housed the relics became more opulent and extravagant, as we saw in the Northern Renaissance episode. You know, they became... More gaudy as well. Yes, much more gaudy, much yeah. more jeweled. But I didn't realize relics started so early in mm. Christianity. Mm. Although, yeah. why didn't I? I mean, Constantine's mother was the one that found the one true cross. Yes, that's what we're coming to, yes. And then she divided it. Yes. Why do you sense? take the one true cross and start <laughs> and soaring it, it into pits? I don't get it. <laughs> But yes, she housed it in the Basilica in Rome, which and it was said to be, quote, too marvellous for words, unquote. Oh, really? It was covered in gold, mosaic and marble. I love that thing, because it just, yeah, I mean, yes, they're saying, oh, it was so stunning that words cannot convey how stunning it is. But it just sounds so modern, doesn't it? Oh, it was too marvellous for words. <laughs> yes. yes, it does. So, wait a second, this is after what they've done to it? They've got the cross. Yes. Uh, presumably they've chopped it up and they've yes. put it in a beautiful reliquary in the Basilica in Rome. Ah, okay, so it was the reliquary that they yeah. 
decked out or blinged out. Yes. <laughs> okay, not the cross itself. No. The cross itself wasn't touched. Uh, not as far as I know, but that's, okay. yeah, that, it, it doesn't always stop them. They're quite happy to stick bits of gold and jewels to things. Okay. The Santa Sofia became the stopping off points for relics entering Constantinople. And they were housed there until their own shrine was built, and then they were moved in there. So they must have been—they must have been a real heyday for craftsmen. Oh yeah. Yeah. What do you do for a living? I'm a reliquist. Yes, that's not a lot of call for that now, is it? I might put that no. down as my my job from now on. <laughs> <laughs> you can. All you have to do is find a single relic and put it in a box. Yes. And make the box. Ambrose up to the ante on relics. He sent dust and bloodstains from the Milanese martyrs Gervasius and Protasius, not not household names now, to his followers, and so other shrines popped up all over the place. It was discovered that the saints didn't actually have to have anything to do with the place where they ended up, because right. originally you'd have a have a local saint, and he'd be the one that you'd support. It's a bit like football yes. now. I mean, you used to support your local team. Now everyone across the world supports Manchester United for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, none of these shrines had anything to do with the martyrs themselves. They were just recipients of dust or blood or bits. And in fact, Gervasius and Protasius, dismembered bodies, were distributed all around Christendom. Ew. Augustus of Hippo was sent some, but he wasn't keen. He talked about hypocritical monks who went around selling off bits of martyrs, which just goes to show, yeah, that the trade in body parts for money had already taken off by the 5th century. Ew, which means... Because if you know, if someone's complaining about it, it must be happening. And we know from later issues Burke and Hare that they'll find just any old body and start flogging it off as a saint oh yes 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 but yeah well precisely because Augustus of Hippo changed his tune following the discovery of the body of St Stephen now that he had a martyr to call his own suddenly relics are a good thing oh man so that's one of those I don't have it so I'm not happy oh I have one so now it's a good thing yes okay a, a priest called Lucian was told in a dream where to find Stephen and sure enough, when they started digging, there he was. <laughs> Let me guess. They had been buried the night before. <laughs> well, they knew they got the right bloke because as they dug there, there was a series of earth tremors and the body released a beautiful fragrance. Uh... And, and if, you, if that doesn't convince you, 73 people were healed within an hour of the discovery. Okay. You've really just got to go with these things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, he was quickly chopped up and pieces of him were sent all over the place. Menorca got some, Carthage got some, and his right arm went to Constantinople. In the time of Constantine I, Constantinople had the fragment of the cross, which Constantine put in a statue of himself. Was it a fragment? So they cut it down even more? Because originally she only took it apart. So there were two pieces. <sighs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure how how big. I don't know what when you, a fragment becomes a part. I don't know <laughs> that these things are. Somebody's taken a hatchet to it. Yeah, they had the crosses of the two thieves crucified alongside Jesus. They had the twelve baskets which held the loaves and fishes, and Noah's axe that he used to construct the ark. So a nice little oh. haul. Yes, and why are the crosses of the two thieves worth anything? They were most definitely not saints. No, but one of them did 
repent alongside Jesus, didn't he? But I think the other one didn't, so I don't know. It just seems to me like it's not even hero worship, is it? It's no. collecting for collecting's sake. Yes. The Emperor Julian, who made a last-ditch attempt to return to paganism, said, quote, You Christians have filled the whole world with tombs and sepulchres, and yet in your scriptures it is nowhere said that you must grovel amongst tombs and pay them honour, unquote. Which is true. Yes. He said that they'd created a polytheistic religion with their veneration of saints and martyrs, and that was also a concern of several Christians. By worshipping the saints, you practically make gods of them. Yes. And you're no longer a monotheic. Except they intercede with God. There is only one God. Yeah. These people just speak to him. Well, I think from the outside, it maybe it didn't always look like that. It It doesn't to me either. No. Unless you know which saint is the best nag. <laughs> Choose them to talk to. Go after well, God. I think presumably that's why the Virgin Mary became the big one. Because, uh, you know, he's going to listen to his mum, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> You'd like to hope. <laughs> All boys listen to their mum. Theodosius I, at the end of the 4th century, continued collecting relics on the basis that the more relics Constantinople had, the more sacred his role as ruler became. And this somehow justified his announcement that Constantinople was the most holy city, second only to Rome. So it's important. It it reflects on the ruler. Yes, yes. He imported the bones of the prophet Samuel, Joseph, Jesus's dad, John the Baptist's father, and later the remains of Simeon Stylites, who had lived for many years on the top of a pillar. He's a stylite. Stylites! Yeah. But how do they... I can't imagine they actually found these people. Oh, no. They found somebody. <laughs> How does somebody justify that to themselves and then flog it off to a bunch of people? I was thinking about that. Someone we, I used to know years and years ago wrote the horoscope page for a national, oh. <laughs> national newspaper. And she made it up. And she okay. knew she'd made it up. But she still believes the horoscope's in other papers. <laughs> what? So I think... You might think, well, I've just dug up this body and I'm claiming it's Simeon, but I'm sure the others are fine. So, yeah, that's <sighs> that was the analogy okay. that leapt to my mind anyway. Okay. Pulcheria, who was the sister and regent for Theodosius I, built up the cult of the Virgin Mary in Constantinople. But there was a problem as far as gathering relics for the cult was concerned. Mary hadn't died. She had just fallen asleep and then was taken up to heaven. Right. So no bones, no limbs. No body. Right. Yeah. Luckily, she did wear clothes. And so she went up naked. Well, apparently, apparently, as she rose through the ether, she took off her, I don't know what it was, some sort of robe, and okay. dropped it down, wafted it down through the air, and it was caught by somebody in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh. So, yeah, that did the rounds quite a lot. There was um, quite a lot of them. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Good find. Figiliantius, in the 5th century, said that the saints were in heaven anyway, so didn't it make much more sense for them to intercede with God from there, rather than via their dead bodies? And he went on to suggest that people used relics as compensation for the bleakness of a life spent in celibacy and fasting, so they effectively took the form of a sort of a comforting imaginary friend. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, and it does make more sense. I mean, yeah, pray to the saints and say, look, while you're up there, 
could you have a word with God about yes. my gammy leg or something? Yeah. Yes. Relics also could be used to smooth the way politically. The Synod of Whitby, Pope Hadrian I wanted to make sure the Synod voted to accept the authority of Rome. So he sent the wife of King Oswy, who was apparently very pious, his wife, a golden key made from the fetters that bound Peter and Paul when they were in prison. They're imprisoned in golden fetters, apparently. Were they? Apparently. And this won England hmm. over completely, and England accepted papal authority much more readily than the rest of Europe. So we, we were quite easily bought, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> we went entirely over to the Pope for the price of a key with an extremely dubious provenance, I think. Do you still have the key? I've no idea. I've not heard of it before. Neither have I. No. By the 10th century, Constantinople also had Christ's robes, his sandals, the sheets he was wrapped in after he died, the crown of thorns, an iron shackle, and a cloth on which there was an image of Christ that apparently Jesus had sent to a king who had asked to be cured of leprosy. I didn't realise Jesus did mail order miracles. <laughs> oh no! Is this the shroud that the church has? It's not the Turin shroud, no, it's a okay. different one. Yeah. The people of Constantinople felt invincible, not just because of their amazing walls, but because the city was chock full of relics. Yes, it would be comforting if you believed in it. I think it would. I really do think it would. Yeah. Especially since you could say that's the reason we've survived so many hundreds of years and nobody's ever gotten in. Unless somebody opens the gate. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure how happened. you explain it like, when people do get in, but, but I suppose sin, the devil. God's, God's yeah. turned against you. There's always an answer. Yes. In the rest of Europe, the situation was obviously more fragmented. Rulers would champion a particular saint and shrine because it would build up their religious kudos. Right. And they would use their their saint against the saint of a rival territory. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean they'd hit each other with it. I mean, it's I wouldn't put it past them, though. <laughs> when Martin, a Roman soldier, had given half his cloak to a beggar, I wasn't quite sure, did he rip the cloak in half or did he sort of tell the beggar to snuggle in? I don't Beside know. him. Yeah. But he went on to become an ascetic bishop and he died and the city of Tours and Poitiers tussled as to who should have his body. Tour won by the simple expedient of nicking it. <laughs> That's pious. Yes. You know how pious I am? I stole it. <laughs> they wouldn't look at it as being stealing, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, they crept into the chapel, shoved Martin out through a window, plonked him on a boat and quickly rowed him up the River Loire. And apparently you can still see Martin's body in Tours, so it paid off. And when Gregory, oh. Bishop of Tours, heard of any preachers coming to Tours with their own relics, he had them run out of town. Because spiritually, oh. spiritually and financially, it was important that no other saints had knocked Martin, and therefore Gregory, off his pedestal. Okay. Being cured by a saint meant not only that it was quite nice for the pilgrim not to have suffered from whatever he'd suffered from, but it also meant welcoming them back into the Christian fold, since they must have sinned or they wouldn't be ill. Okay. So a cure is a sure sign from God that whatever you'd done to deserve that illness had now been forgiven. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, but it worked both ways, because Gregory of Tours said that a man who'd stolen something from the shrine of St. Julian became so hot that, quote, smoke poured from his body as if from a furnace, unquote. Is this the first self-combustion? Oh, might be. Hmm. 
we saw with Ferdinand of Aragon's mother that the holy body is incorruptible. Yes. St Cuthbert's body, he's in Durham, was said by the Venerable Bede to be so lifelike when his coffin was opened that his limbs were still flexible. Which presumably okay. meant, meant that they picked them up and waggled them about a bit. Yes, <laughs> which they might have. Yeah. If they're willing to cut them up, why not move them? Oh, yes. He did go on to say, quote, myrrh and aloes refer to the continents of the flesh because of the nature of these aromatics is that the body of the dead, when anointed with them, do not decay, unquote. So obviously he stood, he understood about embalming techniques. Yes. Because I suppose the fact that they are aromatic means that when you open it, you might get a lovely smell of myrrh and smell. thing. But would the embalmed body be flexible? Yes. Well... If they did, which they usually did, they would seal the coffin in lead, which meant no air got in, which yes. means no bacteria could grow. So you'd open it up, and while they looked undecayed then, they would quickly degrade after that. That's well, quite common. Yes, but they did open Cuthbert's up on several occasions, and each time, I mean, there were centuries between each opening. Hmm. Uh, his body as was soon moved. as you did it once, it should have started decaying. Oh, I well, don't know, no, because he's a saint. Yes. You're forgetting that. I'm forgetting <laughs> the saint part. <laughs> Sorry, we're being very cynical. <laughs> Realistic. <laughs> By the 8th century, Christ was often portrayed as a warrior, which went some way to justify the brutality with which the Christian Gauls under Charlemagne sought to convert the pagan Saxons. Charlemagne had his own collection of relics, the inevitable piece of the true cross, <laughs> the hair of the Virgin Mary, and I'm not sure if that's one hair or all of it. <laughs> one of her dresses, Jesus' swaddling clothes. Wait, if the Virgin Mary went up and all she left was her clothes, how do you all of a sudden have her hair? She might have cut it on another occasion and saved it. Hmm. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, the cloth used in the beheading of John the Baptist. I'm not sure in what capacity it was used. <laughs> they sawed it with a piece of cloth. <laughs> and the cloth Jesus wore around his waist during the crucifixion. So, yeah, nice little collection. In 823, Charlemagne's grandson Lothair, or Lothair, backed the winner in a particularly acrimonious battle for the papacy. And his fee for doing so was the body of St. Sebastian. Oh, I'd w I want money. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and when this got out, there was an outcry from other supporters who demanded their own bodies. <laughs> yeah, he got a body. Why didn't we get a body? Wow. <laughs> Initially, the Pope, Eugenius, denied that St. Sebastian had ever left Rome, but everyone knew he was lying. And then he had to keep looting the catacombs of Rome to pay off all his supporters. Oh, my goodness. And he was doing this furtively. The relics were sneaked out of Rome and through Italy, and it was only when they were safely over the Alps that they were able to sort of process them in the style to which Suitable. they wanted to become accustomed. Yes. yes. By the 11th century, there was a fashion for encasing the relics in gold. St. Foy was a child martyr, and her head was covered in gold and jewels, and when it was carried through the streets, the peasantry were convinced that she was looking at them and granting their prayers. Because I think she must have had big jewel eyes. <laughs> Are you going to cover St. Gein 4? If not, who? go to Pontifax. St. Gein 4, it's the dog that became a saint 
That, oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the Catholic Church says isn't a saint, but I'm I'm picking he is a saint. <laughs> oh, yeah, when you look at the, some of the ones that did become saints. <laughs> <laughs> Bree and Fry of Pontifax, they did an episode on St. Kim Four. I'm a bit behind with all of the podcasts. I think the <laughs> so we started doing our own, it's like, when do we have time to listen? Yes. Martyr's arms, were encased in gold, were used to give the blessing at the end of the Mass. Whack! <laughs> <laughs> Probably not that way. <laughs> But that's what I've been sure. I'll just stand in front waving them about saying you're blessed, you're blessed or whatever they say. <laughs> it's uh, well beyond words. <laughs> Reliquaries are also made portable so they could be trolleyed out in the event of epidemics and harvest failures and even rioting. Oh, to calm the people? Yeah, people would, would see oh, there's the big toe of Saint somebody. Yeah. And they'd feel guilty. Okay. The 11th century saw a breakdown in order and an increase in millennium panic. First in the year 1000, and then when the year 1000 had come and gone without mishap, in 1033, a thousand years after the crucifixion. It's a bit like just at the moment. Every time I put my computer on for a while, it was saying, we know the exact date when a wall of snow is going to hit England. Wall of snow, they kept saying. <laughs> and it was Febru February the 11th. Well, we're now on February the 13th. I was going to say, <laughs> you haven't told me about it. <laughs> we've had lovely spring days. So when I put my computer on today, it said, in March, there's going to be a wall of snow. <laughs> Wait for March. <laughs> so I think this is a bit like the end of the world. It's just going to keep, keep getting put forward. <laughs> They're telling us we're going to have one in July soon. This, this um, fear of the millennium was accompanied by increasing fury at the wealth of the church. Yes. And people began to demand a return to the ideals of the early church, which was an ethos that the church was very quick to decry as heretical. <laughs> I don't want to be poor. No. <laughs> and so the persecution started, and the first burnings of heretics took place in Orléans in 1022. Mm. The 11th century also saw a boom in pilgrimages to Jerusalem, also brought about by millennium fever, and they brought more relics back from there. So there's a lot of relics knocking around. Mm. By the 12th century, local parishes asserted their independence. Mm. Baptismal fonts in local churches meant that you no longer had to go to the bishop to be baptised. Really? Yeah. I didn't realise that wasn't a thing at the beginning. I didn't realise that because you go into any church and there's a font. Usually yes. beautiful, beautifully carved ones. But apparently that was not a thing. But then again, how many churches do we have that exist prior to the 12th century? Not yeah, many. True. Some, but not many. Yes. This meant that each local church now needed its own relic. And these were either brought in from outside, or more, more often, they were conveniently found in the local area. Someone would have a dream about where a holy person was buried, and hey presto, there they'd be. Oh, lovely. Yeah. I think it's buried in the churchyard. Try there. <laughs> this is making me think of the crossover episode with Quest Friends, Pontifex, and Saga thing, where they went to get St. Winifred's body. <laughs> <laughs> poor Quest Friends at one point. I think it was it was either John or Andy from uh, Saga thing that said, this, this is, you're just talking to a whole bunch of people who have historical knowledge about her. <laughs> so it kind of went a little sideways a bit. <laughs> 
Yeah, historical knowledge is no benefit to this sort of thing, I don't think. <laughs> Some of the bodies were attributed to people who didn't actually exist and whose whole histories and martyrdoms were constructed for them. Oh! And some were uncovered as forgeries, but that rarely made an impact on their popularity. Right. Hence St. Guim Vore. There's still a saint dog. Dog saint. In the 13th century, reliquaries were becoming more and more opulent, despite some dissent that the money would be better spent on the poor. Also, it was feared that the peasantry were mesmerised by the gold and jewels rather than the relic itself. Ah. Uh. And the largest reliquary housed the skulls of the three wise men. The Pope granted 40 days remission from purgatory to anyone who visited them. That's not very many if you're going to be in there for thousands of years. No, you'd keep going back, wouldn't you? If you've got a week yes. in Rome, you just keep... Every day. <laughs> yeah. It was the rebuilding of Saint-Denis so as to be lavish enough to do justice to the relics it held, which kicked off 400 years of Gothic cathedral building. Oh, yeah. I love Gothic cathedrals. Yes, well, it was the first one that they thought, well, we want not, we want light and space. Things. Yes. Christians had long felt that looting relics from the East was fair game, since the Muslims obviously didn't deserve them. <laughs> <laughs> but when, in the middle of the 11th century, the Roman popes claimed that the Eastern Orthodox Church was heretical, that left Constantinople available for plunder too. Oh no, right! Mm. A monk from Venice travelled to Constantinople, broke into St. Stephen's tomb, because he knew he got the right one by the lovely fragrance, <laughs> and made off with a relic which he took, took back to Venice. Another monk persuaded a priest in Constantinople to open a chest of relics, and then, presumably while the priest's back was turned, the monk filled his habit with bones and sort of hightailed it out of the church. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That is not proper behaviour for a monk. No, I think monks yeah. monks were very different things to what we expect from a monk now, Yes, I think. When crusaders moved into Constantinople, they were heading for the Holy Land but never quite made it, they stole 3,600 relics representing 476 saints. And they were sold off to pay their debts to the Venetians who'd built the ships for the crusade. And if you want to know more about what the crusaders were up to and why they had occupied Constantinople, Listen to Titalis Rankium, episode 153, Alexios 4, and it will all become clear. Mm-hmm. Well, reasonably clear. <laughs> as clear as it can be. Any guilt anyone might have felt about looting relics from Constantinople was quickly assaged once the miracle started happening. Because the relics are obviously happy to be in their new place if they were ah. going to start interceding for people. Okay. Even a tiny monastery of just eight monks who'd been given a piece of the, the true cross looted from Constantinople clocked up 39 resurrections from the dead and 19 restorations of sight to the blind. You don't seem pleased. 39 people who were dead, but then alive. I thought, oh, yeah. I thought you'd be happy for them, that's all. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. <laughs> Strangely, Constantinople still claimed to have many of the relics that had allegedly been looted, with the result that there was now two of everything. Oh, jeez. <laughs> At least two of everything. At least. Yeah. 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council forbade the sale of relics, and no one uh, took any notice. <laughs> nope. 14th century. 
people started cutting up the bodies of martyrs to see if they had any holy marks in them. And this started with a nun who was embalming one of her sisters, her nun's sisters, not one of her family sisters, and she found the image of Christ on the cross on her heart. And by the 15th century, it had become part of the canonization procedure to insist on an autopsy to check for holy signs. Ew! Just gets weirder and weirder, doesn't it? What was her justification in cutting into her in the first place? Yeah, she was embalming her. Does she need embalming? Just shove her on the ground. Quickly. Anyway, relics were trundled around on ferretaries, or portable shrines, to be venerated en route, and so raise money for the building of their shrines. The people of Léon, in France, sent their relics on a tour as far as England. It was a round trip of 1,200 miles. There is a theme through this whole thing, and it isn't relics, it's money. It's money. They raised enough funds to renovate their church, which had been gutted the year before in a riot. (sighs) Okay. At this time, this, at this time, it was decided that the consecrated hosts were also considered relics, the wafers that you get. They were the body of Christ after all. In a little town in northern Germany, there were relics of blood-stained consecrated hosts, which had a rather unpleasant backstory. They had been dug up in 1492 by a clergyman, who had been told about them in a dream. An investigation was made to find out who had stolen and buried them, and a priest was soon arrested. He confessed that he'd pawned a pot to a Jewish moneylender and had redeemed it by giving him the hosts. The Jews then tried to stab the hosts in an attempt to injure Jesus, and the hosts had bled. Mm. They quickly buried them to hide the evidence. 26 Jews were burned to death, and the entire Jewish community was expelled. Of course, And rather than being ashamed of this act, the town used the story to advertise their relics and made the most of the spread of printing to advertise their town as a pilgrimage site. Hmm. I'm not happy. Press press the button. (laughs) I'm not happy. (laughs) Bleeding hosts became a popular relic in the 15th century because churches already had them handy. They didn't have to buy in body parts or dig someone up. They just had to say that their host had started bleeding and pilgrims came from miles around. And since since Jesus rose to heaven, no part of Jesus could have been left behind, except, weirdly, his foreskin. And you find Jesus' foreskin all over the place. Mm, what is wrong with people? Yes. So, to have the consecrated host relics was a way to have the body of Christ in your reliquary, which was a step up from the arm of St. Sebastian or... St Andrew's tooth. You've got Christ. You've got the big one. <laughs> and this is Corpus Christi. And in England, the Feast of Corpus Christi was accompanied by processions and mystery plays. A big event. <sighs> because the host had gained relic status, the clergy were reluctant to allow the hoi polloi to touch it. So now the vicar turned his back on the congregation and did whatever it is he does, away from their gaze. Oh, Yeah. And the laity began to feel they were being excluded from holy rituals. And this was one of the triggers of Protestantism. Really? Just that? One. One of them. There were many, many more reasons to to feel a bit miffed by the medieval Catholic Church, I think. Theologians began to complain that people were expecting the cure from a relic rather than looking to God and using the relic as an intermediary. 
and it had been impossible to differentiate between divinely authorised rituals and superstition. Uh -huh. Pope Sixtus instigated a huge rebuilding plan, and this was partly because Rome was a dump. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and also partly to ease the passage of those oh-so-lucrative pilgrims around the city to venerate the relics. Right. In 1450, there had been a crush to see the Vale of St. Veronica, which saw the deaths of 178 people. Oh. I don't know if it was a surge forward or... I don't know. This rebuilding wasn't universally praised, though, since the money was raised through the sale of indulgences. Yes. And while before, indulgences had to be earned by going on pilgrimages and clocking up the relics, now indulgences were just being sold. You didn't have to do anything for them other than pay. Mm-hmm. Rome was still very popular, but elsewhere the late 15th century saw a dropping off in the interest in relics and pilgrimages. In England, people seem less likely to take these things at face value. Westminster Abbey brought in £120 in 1372, but by Henry VI's reign it had gone down to £10 a year. Oh. Yeah, people just weren't that bothered about paying to go and see relics anymore. Canterbury, which obviously had the cult of Thomas Becket, had initially seen 700 miracles in its early days. And by, by 1445, there was just one. Oh. <laughs> so people were becoming more sceptical? I think they must have been. Okay. And having said that, there were plenty of miracles were ascribed to Henry VI himself after he died. Yes. But with the decline in the desire to venerate old bones and the feeling that the clergy was becoming more and more distant from the laity, the times they were a-changing. Anti-clericalism mm -hmm. dated back at least to John Wycliffe's time in the 14th century, but now dissent was hotting up. Erasmus had something to say about relics. He wrote a satire from the perspective of the Virgin Mary, who thanked the Protestants for telling the congregation that the intercession through, paint, through saints was pointless, she said she'd been run off her feet by constant and often inappropriate petitioning and was glad of the break. <laughs> Thomas More thought the principle of intercession was valid, although most of the relics were fakes, and I suspect many people thought that way. Right. Across the water, Luther was fuming about indulgences, as we saw in Jakob Fugger's episode. Yes. And in 1516... Luther gave a series of sermons on the superstition surrounding shrines. He said that faith won salvation, not the intercession of saints. And, by the way, there's no such thing as purgatory, so all those indulgences you've been buying, forget them. They're completely useless. He said, quote, I wish one would leave the good saints alone and not lead the poor people astray, unquote. Luther believed in miracles. His problem with them was that the church was making money out of them. And he claimed that people were being deflected away from the sacred texts by all the mumbo-jumbo surrounding relics. True. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Luther's rejection of purgatory, indulgences and relics sound good, but he continued to promulgate the idea of eternal suffering. So people would still have an eternity in hell to look forward to, but some of the traditional ways of alleviating this had just been taken away from them. Oh. Yeah, I think from a psychological point of view, things have got a bit bleak. Yes. In the 1520s, iconoclasm started. Luther was against it, and shrines were being targeted as being the most obvious example of the corruption of the Catholic Church. 
We saw in Torrigiadio's episode what happens if you destroy a sacred object. The town council of Zurich was called upon to decide on the religious future of their city, and many leaned towards Protestantism, although some craftsmen decided they'd be out of a job with Protestantism and stuck with Catholicism. <laughs> the Protestants clamoured for the removal of icons and relics, but they risked punishment for the destruction of a sacred object. Okay. The council got round this by degrading the crime from blasphemy to vandalism. Oh. Now, if you could claim that you'd done it with the best of intentions, for instance, burning a wooden cross to keep the poor from freezing to death, you could get away without any punishment at all. Oh. In, the 15, in 1524, the council had decreed that the shrines should be dismantled, and to avoid a free-for-all, they did the dismantling themselves. Sculptures, shrines and vestments were redistributed largely to the poor, and the relics themselves disappeared. Other cities took a different tack. Strasbourg remained Catholic, but on the Feast of the Purification of the Virgin in 1524, when relics were paraded through the city, a group of people shouted to the priest to get out and take his idols with him, and they grabbed the offerings that had been, been made to the relic and stuffed them into the poor box. Oh! And these protests continued. Eventually, the Strasbourg Council agreed that ornaments in the church could be given to the poor. And it was a compromise that worked for a few years. But then gangs raided the church and threw out the icons and relics. Wow. I, I'm saying wow, because that's such a change. Like, that's a complete reversal. Mm. In a very short amount of time. Yeah, I, th I think once, once Protestantism kicks in, it really does... The yeah. snowballs, doesn't it? In Basel, the relics were all piled up. They had the finger of John the Baptist, Mary's milk, again, assorted heads and bits of bobs of Peter and Paul and, and Andrew. And I'm not sure what they did with them, but it must be quite a macabre sight, having yes. all these things in a great heap in the town square. In 1545, Calvin wrote his treatise on relics. He said, quote, Instead of observing their lives, that's the lives of the saints, in order to imitate their example, it directed all its attention to the preservation and admiration of their bones, shirts, sashes, caps, and other rubbish, unquote. And he criticised the fact that there seemed to be several of everything. Quote, <laughs> with, with regard to the milk of Mary, there is not a town, convent, or nunnery where it is not shown in large or small quantities. Indeed, had the Virgin been a wet nurse all her life, or a dairy, she could not have produced more, unquote. Uh, that's still creepy. It really is. Mm. I find that more creepy than a bone. Yeah. You wonder what it was. Probably cow's milk or goat's milk. Yeah. In England, the shrines were also being dismantled, but their money didn't go to the poor. No, it went to Henry. It went to Henry VIII. And his supporters. Yeah. There have been rumblings in England against idols and, sh and shrines. But it only really took off when Pope Clement VII refused to annul Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. It all seems a lot pettier in England, I think. Yes. <laughs> the Act of Supremacy in 1534 gave Henry the right to, quote, visit, repress, redress, reform, order, correct, restrain and amend all such errors, heresies and enormities, which by any manner of spiritual authority or jurisdiction ought or may lawfully be reformed, unquote. Which covers virtually everything, I would have thought. Yes. yes. From 1535, Thomas Cromwell started closing the smaller monasteries and deflecting the money into the purse of the king. 
and it only took four years to dissolve all the monasteries. Four years, that's it. Commissioners, given the task of dissolving those institutions, fell over each other to ridicule the relics they found. Mind you, they did include the coals from the fire over which St Lawrence was roasted, and the fingernail pairings of St Edmund, so a lot to ridicule there, I think. Yes. Unfortunately, the revamping of the religion extended to feast days. Apparently there were too many. There were a lot. There were a lot, and people were not expected to work on those days. Well, so they couldn't work. Away, yes. Yes, that's what Hugh Latimer said. The people couldn't earn a proper wage because there were so many damn holidays. And Some... they were all jealous. <laughs> yes. Some people fought back, but Cromwell pointed out some hoaxes like the statue, which was found to have a mechanism in it that made it, made the eyes move. He said, right. look, and yeah. the duck's blood. Yes, and he said, look how you've all been conned. And it didn't help that a lot of these shrines were pretty tatty by this point. Yes. You know, the relics themselves looked very sorry specimens. Henry now backtracked. It had gone too far. Relics shouldn't be venerated, he said, but they shouldn't be destroyed. Apart from Thomas Beckett, sorry, apart from Thomas Beckett, <laughs> <laughs> Henry had a real downer on Beckett because <laughs> he'd been a rebel to his king and country. Right. And should never have been made a saint. No. Beckett was given 30 days to clear his name. What? Sorry? And after 30 days, he still hadn't performed any miracles, so his bones were burnt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Although ostensibly Cromwell was executed over the marriage with Anne of Cleves, it seems likely that Henry was also frightened by the speed of Cromwell's reforms. He suddenly thought, oh my goodness, it's taking off. I can't, I can't stop oh. it. The King's Book, oh. 14, no, the King's Book, 1543, the sort of how-to book on acceptable practices of worship, and it advocated yeah. the dissolution of all shrines and relics, but allowed images of Christ and the saints as long as they weren't given, quote, godly honour, unquote. In other words, as long as it was Christ you praised and not his picture. Right. Edward was even more aggressively opposed to shrines and relics. And it shows that yes. some people must have been clinging on to the tradition since it had to be reiterated that they had to go. Right. He also got rid of candles as a form of rever reverence and incense. Also processions, healing with holy water and the ringing of bells to drive out demons. So, yes, it almost have felt very different to people. All the things they'd yeah. had forever. Yeah, suddenly washed the out. churches so they were no longer painted mm. beautifully. Yeah. There were some incidents as, as groups tried to smash up shrines while traditionalists tried to save them. By 1550, altars were replaced by simple tables and the clergy had to wear simple vestments. Chantry chapels where monks could would pray for the soul of the dead were closed down, since what was the point? There was no such place as purgatory. Right. And then when Mary came to the throne in 1553, she brought back Catholicism. Altars came back, the host was consecrated again, and relics reappeared, which just showed that they hadn't really gone away. Yes, they Pe just came out of the closet. People had been hiding them. Yes. Edward the Confessor made a reappearance and was installed in Westminster Abbey, where he still is to this day. I'm assuming it is him. <laughs> Then Elizabeth, 1558, and the statues and relics disappeared again. Yep. She was much the candles more... stayed. Yeah, she was, well, she was much more conciliatory, and she allowed prayers to be said for the dead. 
because she had to be a little circumspect since it was thought that Philip II of Spain would invade if she was too radical. Right. Very little remains in English parish churches to show that there ever were shrines. There's a few niches with no statues in them now. You see them in most churches. And some paintings, but no shrines. Mm -hmm. And places famous for their holy water miracles became spas like Bath. Right. In Italy, it was a very different matter. The Council of Trent met over several years, 1545 to 63, and it reiterated all those things that had been abolished in England, particularly relics and indulgences. And it also said that only the church could interpret scripture and anyone who interpreted it in a different way was a heretic. And it put 700 works on the index of prohibited books. So, wow. Yeah. In Spain, Philip II was a keen relic collector. He created a place to venerate St. Lawrence, since he'd beaten the French on St. Lawrence's Day. And the building was in a grid pattern, depicting the grill on which St. Lawrence had been roasted. Ew! Hmm. Why do people think that martyrs want to be reminded of this stuff? I don't know. <sighs> it's definitely not your happiest day of your life. Well, I don't know. Or is it? martyrdom you're still going to be glad when it's over Philip made it his life's work to save relics from Protestant Germany and Holland and they were sent to him by the crateful as he lay dying in agony various relics were brought to him to be venerated and just before the point of death the rib of St Alban was brought to him and it was a present from the Pope and it had been imbued with papal fast track food purgatory magic which is nice <laughs> but can you imagine you're dying as hands you a rib it's, yes it's so weird but why were relics ever a thing I mean it's hard for us to get our heads around the idea that for these people the supernatural was a very real place existing on a different level to the world we know but utterly real nonetheless and it was not until the enlightenment that ordinary people began to question it if Emperor Julian is right, and relics do not appear in the scriptures, and I think he probably is, why was there considered a need for them? I don't know. I mean, you can largely blame Augustine in his writings on original sin and his pessimistic outlook on human nature. The idea of purgatory was ludicrous, but strangely comforting, because if you take away purgatory, what are you left with? Just heaven and hell. It's a bit stark. At least with purgatory, you felt... You could do something. Right. Or, you had a chance. Yes, or you, your family could do something. But this pessimistic attitude must have weighed heavily, weighed heavily on the medieval mind. You know, all this, I am abject and unworthy, O Lord. Innocent III wrote, On the contempt of the worlds, in which he said, quote, Man has been conceived in the desire of the flesh, in the heat of the sensual lust, in the foul stench of wantonness. His evil doings offend God, offend his neighbours, offend himself. Accordingly, he is destined to become the fuel for the everlasting painful hellfire, the food of the voracious consuming worms, unquote. And that's just for being born. I don't want to live in that world. No. Jeez. And the belief that God allowed the devil to wreak havoc that we saw in the Manius Maleficarum just increased the misery. 
the fact that God was seen as arbitrary, not rational, must have made, left people completely floundering. So yes. you'd grasp anything to alleviate this feeling. I felt it was almost as if the church had created the illness and then created the cure and then charged people for it. Wow. And often when relics were revealed at cemeteries, those present, rather than cheering, they would howl with anguish. It must have been quite disturbing. Yeah. This went from being funny to being very sad. Um, yeah, even when people did question the relics, it was not necessarily the relics themselves that were considered at fault. It was the opulence of the shrines and the distancing of the clergy and the blatant corruption of it all. Okay. And when Protestants took over England, Germany and the Low Countries, what was ignored was how much comfort all these things gave the parishioners. Because in a time when medicine was hit and miss, if not downright dangerous, miracles yeah. gave people some hope. True. Very true. And the saints are more tolerant of human frailty than the church was. Maybe it, you could confess something to a relic and ask forgiveness that you'd think twice about turning your parish priest. So the reason the belief lasted so long was it was to everyone's benefit to believe in relics and miracles. The peasantry were given hope and the church was given money. And on that cynical note... Here endeth today's lesson. Oh no, that's where we stop. <laughs> oh, that was, I just rewind, take a chunk out of the beginning of this show and put it at the end. <laughs> <laughs> so at least we ended on a happy note. <laughs> well, we've all got used to it, haven't we? We don't, we don't. Most true. Most of us in Protestant countries don't worship relics, so very true. We got over it. <laughs> we do think it's weird, especially the body parts. The fact that it doesn't it doesn't appear in the Bible anywhere. Yeah, I, what I couldn't work out is who was the first person to say, "Well, you know that bloke who died that we thought was such a good 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 bloke. Let's dig him up and put him on the altar for a whole." It's just. Yeah, and why would everybody else go? Yeah, good idea. Yes. Ugh. Yes. You'd think you'd hope that everybody else would say, You're mad. <laughs> why <laughs> did you want to do you? that? <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, anyway, that's what's going on in the uh, early Tudor mind. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> It's educational, if nothing else. Yes. <laughs> well, I've got my little box with my eyes and thumbs, and I should pop out and do a quick veneration now. <laughs> okay. I'll do the same. Okay. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.